Turn over in the, uh, the Bible to Romans, or in the book of Romans this morning. Every time I read that psalm, Joe, I, I call that the dentist psalm because it has that verse in there, open, mouth, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I always tell my brother-in-law, that's your, your psalm. <laughs> He's a dentist, but uh, as you're turning to uh, Romans chapter 2, I want to begin our message this morning. We've been speaking of God's judgment. And I want to read a portion of Scripture. You can turn there if you like. Just keep your thumb, uh, thumb in uh, Romans there. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And for those of you that may be new with us here, we're, we, we teach through books of the Bible. So we uh, are in the book of Romans. We've been in it uh, for about 14 weeks now. And uh, we're continuing our study through that. And right now we're covering Romans chapter 2, which speaks on the judgment of God. If you've been visiting the last couple of weeks, you might be thinking, well, this, all this guys talk about is judgment, judgment, judgment. Well, that's within the text. So that's what we're dealing with. So God is the uh, director here in our studies together on Sunday mornings. Uh, I'm merely just an instrument uh, that hopefully he uses in some way. Um, Revelation chapter 20. I want you to look at verses 11 all the way down to 15 with me, and I want to read them for you. This speaks of the great judgment before the great white throne. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Very sober verses for us to remind ourselves, our God is a God of love and yet he is still a God of judgment. The Apostle Paul, in our studies together on Sunday mornings, really has been giving us a, uh, a basis of God's judgment. And that basis runs all the way, Romans chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to verse 16 of chapter 2. That's all he has in focus here is the judgment of God. And so we're doing a series on the God's righteous judgment. And there we find that God judges on the basis of Knowledge, truth, guilt, deeds, impartiality, and motives. So Romans 2 can be almost isolated from the rest of the book because it has to be viewed as a much larger picture in which Paul represents the gospel. That's his goal here. He's representing the gospel as he, as he t- writes this, this letter 
to the church at Rome. Now, we know what the word gospel means, right? It means good news. Sometimes before you hear the good news, you have to hear the bad news. <laughs> That's just the way it works. Um, in life, in general, if you think about it. Uh, sometimes when you go to the doctor, they'll tell you, do you want to hear the good news or the bad news first? <laughs> Depending on your personality, depends on which one you pick. But before you can hear the good news, you must know what the bad news is. The problem today with a lot of evangelists and evangelism is that they're not willing to share the bad news with people. They're only willing to share the good news. So they run out of the church into the highways and byways and they talk about a God that's, that's loving and forgiving and gracious and kind. Don't you want to accept him? And people say, well, sure, why wouldn't I? They've left out a major part of the gospel. The part that talks about our sin, the part that talks about our repentance, the part that talks about that unless God saves us, we will end up in that lake of fire. And sometimes they leave it out purposely because they don't want to offend anybody. There are churches today in America that won't mention the word sin. They won't mention the word the blood of Christ, the words. They won't mention God's judgment. All they talk about is God's purpose for you and God's love, God's love, God's love. And that definitely is part of who God is. God is a God of love, but he's also a God of holiness. He's also a God of purity. He's also a God that will one day exact perfect judgment. And so before you hear the good news, you have to understand what the bad news is. And we've gone through that, basically. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. That's all bad news. So if you're looking for a glimmer of hope when you come out Sunday mornings, there's going to be that. But a lot of what we're going to be going over is some bad news because Paul wants them to understand the bad news before they get to the good news. All the way down in chapter 3, verse 21, you have that little word, but... (laughs) Now the righteousness of God. In other words, now that you're completely undone, Paul's saying, now that I've totally stripped you of everything you think you are, all your religiosity and all your good morals and all the the good things that you have in your life, now that all those are gone, now you can finally understand the righteousness of God. And so he continues to share that with them at that point. But from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, All the news is bad. The the bad news basically is man is a sinner and man is immoral at the very heart. Even at the highest ethical point in someone's character, they fall short of God's standard. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 to 20 says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Then look, it says, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so Paul wants us to clearly understand that, you know what? If you've ever shared Christ with somebody, 
and you start talking about the holiness of God and you start talking about maybe a reason why they should be in heaven one day, the first thing they usually do is they start justifying themselves. Well, you know, I, hey, I go to church every week, or I do this, or I do that, or I'm a good dad, or I'm a good father, or I'm this, or I'm that. Or They start justifying themselves. And what Paul is saying here in chapter 3, when we get to that point, he's basically saying, I want everybody just to be quiet. Just stop, stop answering. Stop talking. You need to understand who is holy here and who is not. So beginning with Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he begins to tell us that, you know what, man, there's hope because Christ saves us from our lost condition. So all those verses before that are basically a condemnation of immoral men. And so chapter 2 focuses on the outwardly religious people. We all know them. Maybe there's some here today. They're moral, they're religious, they're self-righteous. Chapter 1 focused on the pagans, the people that didn't go to church, the people that were the Gentiles in their society. And so while he's going through chapter 1, you could just see the Jews who were around Paul going, yeah, you give it to them, Paul. Those Gentiles, they need to hear this because we're not like them. We're religious. We're Jews. We're God's chosen people. But then chapter 2 opens up and Paul begins to say, look, you're without excuse as well. Everybody will be held account before God's judgment throne. Both types end up, whether it's a Gentile or the Jew, whether it's a church-going person or the, 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 just the outwardly religious person, it doesn't matter. The total pagan, doesn't matter. They are all condemned. We're all condemned before God. And so we started to look at the way God exacts his judgment. And there was several points here. The first one was found in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Romans. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you judge and you practice the very same things. The first thing we looked at was knowledge. You don't have any excuse. Everybody has knowledge. Everybody who's hearing this message this morning is given knowledge of God's Word. So when you walk out these doors, you're not going to be able to say, oh, I never knew. I didn't know. No, God bases His judgment, His perfect judgment, His exact judgment on knowledge. And that knowledge is given in different ways. All you have to do is go out and look around the creation. You can see that obviously somebody put this all together. It just didn't happen overnight. A fool would say that. If you see a new house on your block, it wasn't an empty lot the day before. You saw people building it. You saw it going up. You saw the foundation and the structure going in. Why? Because there's a builder. If there's a house there, there's a builder. When you look at creation, you understand that, you know what, there's a, there's a creator. That's general knowledge to everybody. But there's also specific knowledge. There's revelation from God through his word. And God's people, the Jews, were given specific knowledge of God's existence. And then the second thing we looked at was the truth. In verses 2 to 3, it says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, 
You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? See, that's what the Jews were hoping. The Jews were hoping that God would judge them not based on truth, but based on what looked like truth. All their fancy robes and the outward practices of their religiosity that they went before and and the, the rest of the people in their society and everybody looked up to them. Oh, here comes a leader, a religious leader in our society. Sometimes you go to clergy meetings and not that there's anything wrong with it, but there's some clergy that, you know, they'll wear a collar or they'll wear a robe or they'll wear this or that. And you look at those people and they just look holy. And sometimes you have a tendency to forget that, you know what, their heart's as black as yours. They need saving just like you need saving. And that's how God judges on truth. Not on what something looks like. We can all fool everybody all day long. You can fool me, I can fool you. Only God knows our heart. And that's why he says at the end of verse 3 there, you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? You think that your sin will just go unjudged, that God's just going to laugh and look the other way? That will not happen. Because he bases his judgment on truth, knowledge, truth. The third thing was guilt. Look at verse 4. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, sometimes people do certain things, even as Christians, and we think, well, I guess I'm kind of getting away with it because God's not judging me. God's not disciplining me. And in their case, he's saying, do you really think that that because God is gracious, because God is loving, because God is kind, that just allows you to go out and do whatever you want? No, the reason he's gracious and kind and loving is so that you may repent, that that would lead you to repentance. He doesn't extend this time just so you can sin more. That would be ridiculous. But when you have a hard, hard heart, what he's saying is you're just storing up wrath for yourself. You're storing up the judgment of God, and one day it will all be revealed. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says this, beloved, It is appointed unto men, what? Once to die, and then the judgment. It is appointed unto men once to die, then the judgment. Our society, human history, is unavoidably running toward a final sentencing. The final sentencing. Sometimes in the court of law... been involved with court cases before where they they go before the judge and they put off the final sentencing. They put off the final sentencing. Finally, the day comes when that person is going to be sentenced. And when that sentence comes down and it's final, boom. Yeah, they still have some appeals, but you know what? It's final. That's what the sentence is. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27, the writer tells us this, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And even down a little further in verses 30 to 31, he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Count it, beloved. God will judge all mankind one day. He's warned us of that over and over again. The question of greatest importance to us is since all people will face the judgment of God one day, the question we have to ask ourselves is simply this. What is to be the standard of that judgment? How's it all going to go down? On what basis will some be condemned and sent to hell forever? And on what basis will some be sent to be in glory in heaven forever? Well, that's what we're studying. Today we want to look at the fourth thing here is deeds. And our text for this morning is verses 6 to 10 of Romans chapter 2. So look in your Bibles. You can follow along. I'll read these for us. Romans chapter, six, or Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. It says in verse six, or verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But the glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then he says there at the end of verse 11, for God shows no partiality. We'll look at that next week. But this morning, I want you to understand, when you read through those verses, verses 6 to 10, they're actually in a certain order. They're laid out in a very specific order. If you look at them, you can connect the dots. If you look at verse 6 and verse 11, basically they're connected. God will judge everyone according to his deeds in verse 6. And then in verse 11, it says, God will judge everyone impartially. Look at verse 7. Those who do good will attain eternal life. Jump all the way down to verse 10. Those who do good will receive glory. And then you have 8 and 9. They're tied together. Those who do evil will incur wrath. Those who do evil will suffer tribulation. The main point is at the beginning and the end, and everything else is sandwiched in between those couple verses. And the, the, the obvious point here is that God will judge each person impartially according to their deeds. According to their deeds. You might be sitting here this morning and go, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by grace. We're going to look at that. Because we want to see how this judgment of our deeds fits in with the grace of God. So the first thing here, the principle, he will render to each one according to his works. Every person, count it down, I don't care if you're a pauper or the pope, you're going to stand before God in judgment. Every person will. And so you have to stop and you have to think, well, if, if we're going to stand before God and we're going to be judged by what we do, what role does our works play? What's the big deal here? What we read in the beginning talks about that, opens up the book according to their deeds. I heard a story of a pastor that gave a book of John, the Gospel of John, to someone from who was not saved, and they went to the Catholic Church, and he said, take this book, read this Gospel of John, 
and ask God to show you how you should be saved. Okay. They went home a couple days later. The person came back and said, I found it, I found it. And immediately the pastor thought, wow, okay, he got to John 3.16. The heart was convicted. And man, he's, he's ready to get saved. What did you find? He goes, well, I found out why I should, how I can be saved. And the person ch- turned to John chapter 5. Verse 28 and 29, it says this, Jesus speaking, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And then it says this, Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And the pastor paused and he says, Okay, so I'm basically saved by doing good, right? That's what my church teaches me. And the pastor said, no, you missed missed it. See, this is not a new concept. The idea of God judging us according to our deeds. It's not new. Throughout the Old Testament, as a matter of fact. Jeremiah 17, verse 10 says this, I, the Lord, will search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 says, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. And you can find a lot of other verses in the Old Testament that speak about this, but it's even in the New Testament. The idea that God will judge us according to our works. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 for the Son of Man is coming, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will what? Repay each person according to what he has done. This is going to happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, and also verse 12 to 15. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, Hey, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So you see that one day our, our, our actions, our works will be judged. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 9 Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You know this verse, for whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. Excuse me. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap flesh, or will reap from his uh, flesh corruption. For the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And then even over in Romans chapter 14, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of God, of himself to God. God does not judge us 
on the basis, listen to this, God does not judge us on the basis of our profession of faith. That's not how God judges us. He does not judge the Jewish people of Jesus' day on the basis of their Abrahamic heritage. Oh, you're, you're a Jew. You're, you're of the father of Abraham. Okay, you get a pass on everything. No, that's not how it works. He does not judge you on the basis of your identification with the church. I mean, we all know it's good to go to church. We all know it's good to come under the teaching of God's word, whether it's in a church like we're doing this morning or a midweek Bible study, whatever. We all know that's good. But when you stand before God one day, he's not going to say, did you go to midweek Bible study or did you go to church? That's not going to be the question. Rather, he judges people by the product of their lives. That's how he will exact this judgment. Does a person's life manifest obedience to God or not? Because one's life pattern tells us about your character. In Matthew chapter 7, when we went through the Gospel of Matthew, verse 16, Jesus, referring to false teachers, says this, You shall know them by their what? By their fruits. So he kind of boils it down here for us, and he begins to speak about these two groups of people. The idea that God is going to judge is very clear. It's very clear. You may wonder this morning, is this church believed that you're saved by works? Because somewhere in the Bible, I remember, I think it's uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, right? Not by works, by faith. They don't believe you're saved by works. That would be not what the Bible teaches. It teaches just the opposite. But unfortunately, people get things mixed up when they come here to Romans chapter 2. You know, there's only two groups of people in the world. Those who are saved and those who are not. It's that simple. Those who obey God and those who do not. Now, even those who obey God don't do so perfectly. That's where God's grace comes in. But there are some people in the world that aren't interested in obeying God at all. As a matter of fact, they run the other way when you mention God. And there's others who seek to obey God. Those are the two groups. And all of us will stand before God as an impartial judge one day. And trust me, he keeps good records. He's not like the government. Can't find it when you need it. He has a comprehensive record of all your deeds. And that record will determine eternal destiny. Feeling a little nervous yet? I'm not talking about works righteousness, beloved. That's, that's not biblical. We don't do more for God and, and therefore we get a bigger hug, hug from God. That's, that's not how it works. 
The Bible does not teach that you're saved by your works. The Bible teaches just the opposite, not of works lest any man should boast. The Bible never teaches that salvation is by works. Well, let's look at some facts about salvation so we get our facts uh, clear here. First of all, salvation is given by God. Amen? Amen. Salvation is given by God. You You don't come up with your own saving mechanism to save yourself. Because if you could, you wouldn't need a Savior. You know, the person in the pool that's drowning needs a lifeguard, right? The person that's swimming laps, he doesn't need a lifeguard. He's perfectly content. He's fine. Salvation is something that is given by God. Psalm 115, verse 11 says, Now unto us, O Lord, not unto us, O Lord, excuse me, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for, the, for your mercy. In other words, whatever we are, whether it's your skills, your talents, your job, your house, your family, your life, your character, everything, the glory is not ours, it's God's. It goes to God. Amen. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11 says this, For my own sake, even for my own sake, will I do it. For how shall my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another? God promises to fulfill his own promises. And he won't pass that responsibility off to anyone else. And to maintain glory for himself in saving grace, there can be no salvation by man's own works. Or we would get credit for that. And that's what happens when you ask somebody, do you think one day when you die, you'll, you'll go to heaven? Well, you know, I've, I've, been, I've tried to go to church. I've, I've been a pretty good guy. You know, I've done some bad things, but I'm sure God will take that into account. That's our natural conclusion as a human being. Naturally, we think we're better than what we are. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, by the way, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put... My law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant, beloved, that we're part of is a covenant of mercy and grace. And it extends to unworthy people. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 to 16, Paul said this, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to what? To save sinners. And then Paul says, by the way, I'm the chief one of whom I am chief. I'm the worst sinner that there could be. And then he ends there. He says, nevertheless, I still obtain mercy. I still obtain mercy. Mercy is God withholding 
from us what we deserve. And then Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. The fact about salvation is that it is, and it comes from God. It is God. But I want you to also understand this, that it's confirmed by your works. Your salvation is confirmed by your works. And we're going to be judged by our works. We can't be saved by our works, but we're going to be judged by our works. So how do works fit into all this? Well, Philippians, if you look over there, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, he says this, work out your own salvation and do so with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in us. He's doing good works through us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You catch that? That Christ created you? For good works. You're not saved by your good works. But after you're saved, those good works just kind of naturally begin to happen. Because that's what God has created you for. He says he even prepared those good works beforehand. Because with God, God transcends time. There's no beginning. There's no end with God. That we should walk in them or that we should live in them. That it should become a daily practice of our lives. See, if these works are just happening on Sunday, you got a problem. (laughs) You really do. You got to check your faith. If only the only time you crack crack open a Bible or you say a prayer is on Sunday when you come to church, there's something wrong. We can't be saved by our works, but we have been saved on two good works. You know, if you go to medical school and you become a doctor and one day you have an office and someone comes in your office and says, hey, I broke my leg. Can you help me? And you just kind of look at them dumbfounded. And you say, yeah, wait here. And they sit down in your waiting room and you go in your, your office and you never come back out to help them. What are you doing? You're not, you're not putting into practice what you've learned. You're doing just the opposite. See, as Christians, God has prepared works for us to do before we were ever even saved. And when we get saved, then they just kind of start to flow out of your life. You don't have to have a to-do list. It's just part of who you are. In other words, if you're truly saved, you will be his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, onto good works. You will walk in them. You don't have to take a new Christian and brainwash him and say, now, now you have to start doing good works because now you're a new Christian. So, you know, maybe you should start serving or maybe you should... No, that should just naturally happen. That's, that's the problem with so many churches is they'll, they'll take somebody who's professing Christ you know, they raise a hand or they walk an aisle and then they say, okay, now we need to teach you how to be a Christian. <laughs> When they're not even saved. 
So they learn the language. They learn what to do. The whole time, there's a, there's a void in their life of salvation. But they're learning how to perform. And what God's word says is, you know what? You have to double check if that's the case. If this isn't just naturally happening, like in your backyard, if you have an apple tree, what are you going to pick in the fall off that tree? Apples. You're not going to pick prunes or plums. You're not going to pick oranges. You're going to pick apples. If you're a Christian, don't you think the Spirit of God that dwells within you is perfectly capable of carrying out His process of sanctification in your life? Not that discipleship isn't good. It is good. And we need to be discipling. We need to take young believers and teach them the word and and take them under our mentorship. We need to do all that. But we need to, first of all, make sure that they're a believer. Make sure they're answering the questions correctly. So when God judges, he will look at a man's works to determine if salvation has indeed taken place. It's not that you're saved by your works. It's that you're saved on two good works. And they are the absolute, infallible indicator of someone's salvation. The problem today with the theology of this in so many people's minds is they know people who once professed Christ, walked an aisle, went to a camp, whatever it was. Oh yeah, they became a Christian. There's no, no means of seeing Christ in their life at all. Matter of fact, they're living worse than what they were before they went to the camp or walked down the aisle, whatever it is. And so what do we do? We say, oh, well, they're, they're a backslidden Christian. So we just kind of figure, well, they're saved, but they're not living for the Lord, and, and therefore, I don't know, I, I have a problem with that theology. When you read through the Bible, as, as his children, what does God say that he will do to us if we're not living in accord with his word? As a loving father, he will what? He will discipline us. He'll lovingly kind of bring us back if we're his. The problem is we have a lot of people that are saying they're his, but they're not his. And so when they sway off the path, we kind of, oh, they're backslidden. They're just not spiritual now. I'm not saying you have to live a perfect, sinless life. None of us can do that. That's why we have the grace of God. But the basic overall ramp of our sanctification should be ramping up, not falling away. We should be growing more and more like Christ each and every day. If you're going to the gym and you're working out and you're not seeing any results at all, do you think you'll keep going? I mean, there'd be something wrong. A person's deeds, a person's works reveal whether he has been saved or not. And the unbeliever's works will reveal their unbelief. They will reveal the absence of God in their life because their works will be done in unrighteousness. What's that mean? It means with wrong motives. So you don't do these things in order for God to love you more, to give you a bigger hug. You do them just because it just comes naturally. That's what a Christian does. They will reveal the absence of God in their life because all his works will be unrighteous. An unrighteous person can't do righteous works. 
Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our works are like what? Filthy rags. It's not a very nice term that's used in the Bible there. The believer, however, by faith has been given the power by God to produce righteous works. For the first time after you're saved, you can do something in the name of Christ that you get credit for, that works to your advantage. And as you do that, your salvation will be clear to everyone around you. And that's the basis of what God judges us. God looks at a person's works. If he sees manifestations of righteousness, he knows that that person is regenerate. I mean, he knows it anyway because he's God. But for our sake... And if he sees no manifestation of righteousness, he knows the person is unregenerate. And so his final judgment can be rendered on the basis of works. Understand, please, here in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul is not referring to salvation. Paul is not referring to salvation. He's referring to God's judgment. You have to keep that separate in your mind or you'll get confused. Or you'll start to say, well, yeah, I think the Bible teaches that you can get saved by your works. Because Paul said, no, you have to put it in its context. He doesn't bring up the topic of salvation again all the way down until 321. At this point, he's still dealing with the judgment of God. So what implications does the truth that God judges us by our works have on you. Practically, if there's nothing in your life to indicate righteousness, then guess what? Righteousness isn't present in your life. I used to tell kids in the youth group, no Jesus, no change. No change, no Jesus. It's that simple. Paul said in first, or 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man, if anybody, I don't care who you are, be in Christ. You come to Christ and you're saved. It says that you're a new creation. All things, what? Are passed away. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's a new creation. That's what salvation is about. We have to stop making excuses for people that are professing Christ, and yet they're living the same life they, they lived before they made the profession. With no manifestation of a new creation, there can be no salvation. It's that simple. Now, there may be times, as believers, we walk in disobedience. Once again, I'm not preaching clearly, you know, perfection. We can't. We all walk in down paths of disobedience. But the idea here is that a life barren of righteous deeds cannot claim to be redeemed. Just can't happen. And Jesus said that in Matthew twenty thirty. Whatever whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What's he saying? Either you're on my team or you're not. We're going to know. I was watching a clip of a movie last night. Um, It was the the Green Beret movie, Green Berets with John Wayne. And on one part of the thing, they were setting up this camp and they were protecting it from the the enemy over in in Vietnam. And he was up in the tower, kind of one of the sergeants or whatever, he was up in the tower and he saw this, this Vietnamese kind of going like this, kind of across the 
the yard looking around. He's dressed in the uniform. He's, you know, and he's just, and what is he doing? He's pacing off how far this building is from that one. He was obviously an infiltrator. And they found him out. And so the guy runs down there and he punches, just pulls off and punches this guy right in the face. And he falls down. It's like, and the, their, their uh, South Vietnamese cohort comes out. Why, why did you hit my man? He goes, I, I, he's an infiltrator. I saw him pacing off and marking things. He's not one of us. Well, you better be able to prove that. And they searched him, and out of his pocket, they pulled out a, a lighter with one of the, the soldiers, American soldiers, who had died several weeks ago in the jungle. He had his lighter. So obviously, he was the guy that killed him. And they knew right away, this guy's not with us. He's against us. That's what Jesus is saying here. Well, there's two groups there. Those who will receive eternal life, verses 7 and 10. It speaks to that. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will receive eternal life. They're actively seeking it. It's part of your daily routine. It's part of your life. The first thing you seek is the glory of God. That's the highest and most wonderful goal of any believer in Christ. The reason that you live, the reason you breathe, the reason you serve, the reason, it's for His glory, not your own. If we could just get this through our heads as human beings and as Christians, then we wouldn't have a lot of the drama that happens in so many churches today. And what do I mean? Well, I just don't, don't think they appreciate it, you know. I, I set that whole room up and no one came and thanked me. No one told me how good my food was when I prepared it for Fellowship Sunday. You know, I came down here and I painted that thing and nobody even noticed it. No one even said thank you. Who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for a pat on the back? If that's the reason, please don't do it. Don't do it. Because you're wasting your time and you're wasting our time. Now, if you want to serve Christ for the glory of God, that's a whole different level of service. The highest and most wonderful goal of any believer is the glory of God. We seek to glorify God in the present, attain the glory of God in the future. That's our goal. That's what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, whatever you do, what? Do all for the glory of God. That means you're not doing anything for your glory. Now, with that, I mean, I don't want to sound hard about this. I mean, hopefully people appreciate your gifts and appreciate the way you serve. And, and hopefully, you know, we try to do the best we can to, to, to follow up and let you know, hey, that looks good. And boy, we really like that. And, and that's good. But sometimes that's not going to happen because that's just life. So when that doesn't happen, you have to make a choice. Wait, why did I do that? Did I do that so they would notice it? Or did I do it for the glory of God? To give God the glory basically means to manifest his essence or his nature. It's to be like God. A believer seeks to be a vehicle through which God's glory can be shown, can be manifested. Someone who doesn't have the desire to glorify God, simply, I would say they're not a Christian. Because that's what the whole point is. That's the basic entity of any believer is to bring God glory. We look toward the future one day when we will see Jesus Christ and be transformed into his image. 
1 John chapter 3 tells us about that. 1 John 3 verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall what? Be like him because we shall see him face to face. The goal of every true believer is to reflect the glory of God. And as a result, his life will manifest that righteous pattern. Secondly, here he says, he brings up the word honor. And in a sense, it's, it's the result of glory. One who reflects the glory of God receives divine honor. Do you want to receive honor from God? If you want to receive honor from God and not shame, then reflect his glory. Give all the glory to God. As Christians, our desire should be to please God and hear him say at the end of our lives and when we meet him, well done, what? Good and faithful servant. As you seek to manifest the glory of God, you also seek that God would honor, that God would reward your faithfulness. And then he uses the word immortality or incorruption. Ultimately, that's what we seek. I don't know about you, but one day I'm looking forward to having a different body than the one I have now. A glorified body without all the issues. We seek these things, and as we seek them, they will become a reality when we become like Jesus Christ in the resurrection one day. Why does he bring all these things up? I think the reason Paul is bringing all these things up is to make sure that they understood that they needed a heavenly perspective. A heavenly perspective. The true objective of the saint is to live for that which is eternal. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 says, Set your affections on the things above, not on the things on the earth. I mean, basically, eternal life is the life of God in the soul of man forever. 1 John 5.20 says, Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. If you have eternal life, you have Jesus Christ. Possessing eternal life means that you have Jesus Christ living within you through the Spirit of God. That's why Paul can say, I live, yet not I live, but what? Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In what? The Son of God. Eternal life is not a, qua- a quantity of life. It's not, you know, when you think of eternal life, don't think of well, how, how many years is this going to go on for? It's going to go on for forever. See, in our logic, we think of, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do day after day? Okay, I get it. You're in the presence of God, and wow, maybe for the first thousand years, you're just like, whoa, you know, on your knees. But then, aren't you going to do stuff? Well, yeah, you're going to do stuff in heaven. I mean, are you just going to sit on a cloud and play a harp? Or what are you going to do? That doesn't sound like too much fun in my mind. It doesn't sound pleasurable to me at all. See, eternal life is not 
the quantity of life, but the quality of life. For the first time, you'll be in the presence of God. You'll be totally righteous in every way. If you're a Christian and your life is presently characterized by unrighteousness, you're fighting against the very nature of God that he gave you at salvation. Have you ever tried to hold your breath? Is it easy? It's a lot harder to hold your breath than it is to breathe. Or one time we were swimming in, in a big, long pool. And I said, oh, I can down and back underwater. I almost drowned. I made it, but I almost drowned. It was hard at the end to hold that breath. I was breathing water literally as I came out of the water. See, once Christ comes into your life, once Christ saves you, God's life should begin to dominate you. It's not that you don't still have issues. You do. But we fight and and we resist in our own human sinfulness. That's not going to work. You need to trust Christ. You need to trust the power of His Spirit. One commentator, John Murray, says this, works without redemptive aspiration are dead works. Aspiration without good works is presumption. You have to have both. People whose aim is heavenward will be judged by the life God has produced in them. A true believer will patiently seek to do what is right. That's what he's saying here. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to get across to us. And so when we do that, we want to do that all for God's glory. Eternal life basically means the life of God in Christ Jesus. That's what he's telling us. He wants us to understand that. And they're actually not only seeking it, but they're receiving it. Verse 10, it says, But glory and honor and peace, notice that, for everyone who does good works, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you ever wonder why he always says that, the Jew first and also the Greek? Because the Jews were the ones who had given the word of God. They're the first ones to receive it. And rather than do what they were supposed to do with it, they hoarded it to themselves, thinking that they were the only righteous ones. And they didn't do what God expected them to do or asked them to do. And so they're held to a stricter judgment than the person who doesn't have the word of God. But they're all going to be judged. But that's why he says the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, he's first in line. All that we seek, we receive. We seek glory, God gives glory. We seek honor, God gives honor. We seek immortality, he gives peace. Because when you enter into the holy presence of God, trust me, beloved, you will know peace like you've never known it before. When God sends the righteous into his eternal heaven and the unrighteous into eternal hell, those who enter eternal heaven will have sought glory, honor, and immortality. Paul didn't say that we deserve it. They will receive it because they have done good. No good works are visible when a person's alleged salvation 
is obviously not genuine. And that's something we need to consider. In verses 8 and 9 here, he kind of closes down this, this part and he begins to say that these are the ones who are going to receive wrath. He says, but for those who are self-seeking or contentious, the, the word literally basically means to be a hireling, uh, to work for pay, and when the pay doesn't come in, you don't do it because you're just seeking a paycheck. That's really what it refers to there. You're only interested in your own things. Someone who's selfish. Their own ambitions at stake. Second Timothy 3.2 says that men will become lovers of what? Themselves. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that the Lord died for all, that they who live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Before we came to Christ, that's all we knew. We just lived for ourselves. They're self-seeking. They also don't obey the truth, he says. When a person is self-seeking, they resist what God says because they want to do what they want to do, and so they resist the truth. They rebel, and they also are unrighteous. We've got to get out of our head the idea that we live in a vacuum. Either you're doing right or you're doing wrong. There's no in-between. The road to hell is, is simply defined. A spirit of kind of just negativity and rejection toward the lordship of Christ. And the road to heaven is just the opposite. It's an attitude of submission to the lordship of Christ. God wants us to seek these things. And as a reaction of this, God is, you see it here, his wrath. We've talked about this before. It's another term for anger. And he speaks about his fury, his fury, his wrath. Just different degrees of his anger against our rebellious nature. That leads to tribulation. This was kind of interesting study. This word tribulation here in the text has the idea of pressure. And I don't know if you know anything about what they would do to people in uh, ancient England when they had a death sentence, they would take the victim and they'd tie him down to a, 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 a table and they'd slowly increase the weight upon his chest. They'd just keep on adding weight. And eventually the chest couldn't function and he would die. And that's what this word speaks of. It, it speaks of that kind of weight, that pressure being put on us as a result. And then it speaks of the distress of God or the anguish of God. It, that has the idea of confinement. Um, another weird thing from England is Queen Elizabeth the, the first when, when someone was uh, being punished they had a, a way of punishing them they would put him in a, a very very tiny place where you couldn't move at all you couldn't stretch out you couldn't do anything and that would be serve as punishment for somebody that's the, that idea of distress you're in that kind of a situation you know, I just want to share with you this morning, the New Testament describes hell as an everlasting punishment. It never stops. It never goes away. Unfortunately, a lot of people today believe that, well, you die and you go to hell or you go somewhere and then, you know, uh, eventually you just kind of, you're annihilated. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. It speaks of hell as a lake of fire, fire and brimstone, a furnace of fire, unquenchable fire, a place of suffering, torment. 
Hell is a very real place. It's the final resting place for everyone whose life pattern is continually evil, who have rejected the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God judges according to the deeds, just as he judges according to the guilt, the truth, and the knowledge that we've looked at this morning. Closing, I just want to say, well, how do you produce these good works? You have to do it in Christ. That's the only way to do anything good before God is in Christ. Let me ask you these questions. Do you believe that he died for your sins? Do you believe that he rose again for your justification? Do you believe that he's alive even now and he's interceding for you? Do you believe that he will soon come back to complete the redemptive plan? See, if you, re- if you believe all that, then you need to receive Christ into your life and he will be able to produce these righteous deeds in your life so that when that day of judgment occurs, God will see righteousness in your life, not unrighteousness. I mean, to think that you will get into heaven without good works because you prayed a prayer once or you walked an aisle, that's just plain foolishness. Jesus told us very clearly, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. As a matter of fact, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? Haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we healed the sick? Haven't we done miracles? And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Genuine conversion begins with a change of the heart. And when you live with your sights on eternity in the hope of hearing well done from the Lord one day who knows your heart, then you know you're, you're in the right place. You're seeing God at work in your life. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I thank you for your righteous judgment Lord, sometimes it's a hard topic to speak about, but Father, it's something that's in your word and it's something we need to address. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would apply this to our lives. Lord, if there are anyone here who has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, that they would understand that they are, without Christ, they are completely undone. They're like the man in the Bible that just lifted his hands to heaven and said, Lord, just be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the kind of prayer that God will answer. He will make that make you into that new creation that we spoke of this morning. Lord, if there's anyone here who maybe looks at their own life, even now this morning, they're looking at their life, their Christian life, and there's, they're, they're seeing big gaps. They're seeing major issues going on. They're not able to say, yeah, I'm seeking your glory, your honor. I'm looking forward to that day of immortality. But maybe they're living just for today. They're living for this world. Lord, I pray that you'd convict their heart, that you would change them, that you would cause them to repent, to turn from that attitude, and to turn to you. Because that's where we find grace and forgiveness and mercy in times of need. Father, I thank you for this morning. I pray that you would just give us a safe weekend. Lord, if we're spending it with family and friends, Lord, I pray that we'd be safe above all and And, Lord, that we would live lives that are exemplary of the life that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, lived well.